even if there is a demand, it's not a guarantee that you'll make money because it's a competitive market out there. You need to know how to grow the business. You've got to have a, a good team. Um, founders typically come from the technical side, so they're maybe not good in, in marketing, sales, and branding. And of course, generating revenue, generating sales is the first serious test that you face. And that's probably accounts for a good portion of that 90% who fail before three years because they can't commercialize, they can't generate revenue, they can't market. Welcome back to the Unsensible Podcast. Today, I've got a special guest uh, someone whose name will come up uh, over the coming weeks and months. We've started uh, working very closely with the gentleman sitting next to me, John Evans, founder and general manager of SEIML Ventures. John, we've been talking for a while now, but uh, why don't you tell everyone else um, a little bit about yourself and uh, your very long work history? Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, I started uh, life in the financial markets in 1980 and spent 24 years as an investment banker in debt capital markets, equity capital markets, and investment advisory. Um, and this was always dealing with very large publicly listed companies and, and government issuers on, on the debt side. Then I went into academia for 12 years professor of practice in the UK and China running master's programs in investment management. But in 2016, I returned to industry, but in a slightly different way, um, working in corporate finance, like I started off, but with new early stage companies. And so I've been doing that for about seven years now, started off in China, now expanding into Asia. Um, but I've always done teaching part-time. And so I was very intrigued when I learned about the Founder Institute and the Accelerator Program, which is really like a training program. And I thought it was a great way to get involved with the industry, to, to help early stage companies um, increase their chances for success because there's a high failure rate with, with startup companies, but also in, help the investors um, make better investments in what is a very risky part of the investment strategy. So it, it's it's one line of our business. We we provide consulting services to startups, medium-sized enterprises. We assist investors. But this brings uh, a whole pipeline of early-stage companies that, that we can help either to grow or find funding. So it was a natural extension to our business. Well, I'm not saying you're old, but I do see your gray hairs. Um, you've probably seen a few economic cycles, right? Yes, I, I remember um, shortly after I started in 1980, um, which was a, a period of high inflation, and um, Volcker, who was then chair of the Federal Reserve, raised overnight interest rates in America to 21%, which wow. created a huge um, economic um, recession around the world and the, the monstrous bubble of the lending to LDC, less developed countries, um, like Mexico, Brazil, and Argentina created a, a very substantial recession 
that, that took about a, a decade to recover. So that was my sort of first experience. And then really the 10 years after that, um, one of the consequences of the fallouts of that was that the banking industry was seriously hurt in, in the 1982 banking crash. And so the development of securities markets filled the gap for the, the less ability for banks to finance the world's economy. And so I got in at the very early stages working with UBS at the time of the whole explosion of the euro bond market and later the euro equity market. So it, it was a fascinating time. And then there's, there's been many other cycles at the end of the 90s, um, you know, the, the Asian crisis, the currency and things like that followed shortly after in March 2000 with the dot com crash, um, with the 2008 financial markets crash. And, and you could say we're perhaps entering a bit of a crash, um, as they take away the, the QE bubble. So there's been no shortage of excitement along the way. Yeah. I, I mean, are you seeing, like we've we've had some very colourful uh, characters uh, in the markets of late. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, CZ from Binance. Um, these characters, you know, humans being humans, um, have must have you've you've seen versions of them before, surely. Yeah, I mean, people are very focused now on on the Bankman-Fried um, crypto problems and and court cases and indictments going on. But I think one important thing to to realize is that when you're talking about the financial industry, whether you're talking about a government-backed currency or whether you're talking about a cryptocurrency, which is a, a privately backed, the, the whole system of financial management is really the same. You're just talking about a different underlying asset. And so all of the problems that have come up more recently, which relate to issues about safe custody, um, settling, security, um, reconciliation, separation of client funds from from company funds that, that have been a really big part of the of the Bankman-Fried um, court cases. They're really just the same thing that happened before within financial in- institutions. So there's there's a lot of similarities. It's 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 just the the location changes over time. And you know, we, with uh, Bankman-Fried, I mean, before him there was Madoff, right? There, there's, there's been a whole line, or you can go back to the fellow and um, who is running the um, the fund for um, bearings asset management in the late nineties. Um, so there, it seems like every decade, perhaps coincidental with with a cycle, you you find some really big fraud. It was Bankman Fried. Now it was Bernie Madoff in two thousand and eight. It was the guy at Bearings in sort of ninety seven, ninety eight. Um, they they come and go, probably with with the collapse of or or the downturn in the economy. That's like the old. Economist John Kenneth Galbraith talked about in term the the term the the bezel. All of these serious problems are are not found out in boom times when markets are going up and everyone's happy and no one needs to get their money back. But when the market turns south, like it did when they started jacking up interest rates and ending QE, um, and people then need to get their money back, 
then they find a lot of times they can't get their money back and all of these frauds come to the surface. And that's that's usually when they're found out, when markets turn south. I feel like Madoff was a bit of a, was a much more calculating and smoother criminal, perhaps. He wasn't as flamboyant as Bankman Freed. Um, he actually kept two sets of books, whereas I think uh, in the investigation so far, uh, Bankman Freed really didn't keep books there. She didn't know where the money was. Yeah, I mean, whenever you compare something, you can find similarities and you can find differences. Um, certainly, Madoff attempted to keep a, a low public profile, whereas Bankman Freed tended to be quite extravagant. He was on the cover of Forbes magazine. So, you know, if you're doing something seriously long, wrong on a large scale, probably drawing a lot of public attention to yourself might not be the best long-term strategy. Um, so that that's one big difference between between the two. So now we're seeing a proliferation of fintechs. This is the this is the current buzzword. Um, we've got lots of startups um, set, setting up in this space. At one end of the spectrum, you know, startups that want to become uh, banks, neobanks as they call them, and then you've got, you know, single-purpose um, startups maybe focused on a very uh, small part of the payment system. With all of these um, this this range, do you think we're getting saturated? Is there um, are there too many startups now? I, I think you see every decade in the financial industry a a common trend where there's a lot of expansion and then there's consolidation. Um, over the last ten years, or sort of post two thousand and nine, where we've had the quantitative easing bubble, there was so much cash it was easy to start. Um, companies in any industry, not just in the financial industry. And, and a lot exploded because private capital, venture capital was so easy to come by. Those days are over. And so I think we're going to see consolidation. I, I think that's also always the case in, in the financial industry because it, it really is a market that's dominated by large one-stop financial institutions. And so it's very hard to survive as a, a single provider of some financial service. Usually, sooner or later, they get bought up by a full-service bank. Um, so the, the single-purpose providers, I think, are are here for a long time because there's a lot of legacy systems. There's a lot of inefficiencies that can be um, intermediated or, or disrupted by new fintech. So I think there's a lot of opportunity, but I think the longer term prospects for these single purpose fintechs is to be acquired by some much bigger financial institutions. Um, I think the neobanks are a slightly different story because um it's really very difficult to start a new bank. I mean, it's not just the issue that there's so many established banks and thus a lot of competition out there, but banking is is an industry that operates on high leverage. And so if you enter the industry, even as a small entrant, you have to work on that leverage. Otherwise, you can never be profitable. Um, but you only ever keep a small percentage of your deposits on hand. So if there's ever a loss of confidence in the market or your institution, then you can fail very, very quickly. We saw that with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, right? 
Yeah, which which wasn't exactly a startup, but it it emphasizes the point that if there's a loss of confidence, you know, banks can fail very very quickly. So I'm I'm a little less bullish on the neo banks as I are on the single providers, because I think they're in a very risky position. Um, if they can develop some sort of really different and effective um, internet bank. They might be acquired by a big bank that has been unable to develop it. But I, I, I think that's a very risky area. Whereas I think the the single payment or the, the single service providers have a good future um, because there's still lots of opportunity to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the capital markets, even if you're going to be bought out longer term. It's it's interesting because you know we spoke earlier and um, you know if you take a view of a single market if you look at if you if you're just in Singapore you might say that well the market the banks are so innovative um, the payment systems you know all linked uh, what is there left to improve yeah and and I think the public only sees the surface of the financial industry i mean in in the courses we run in financial markets operations, how the sort of internal plumbing of the financial system um, works um, to the outside user, it may seem very up to date, but maybe in terms of the settlements, the custody, the processing they're using legacy systems that are are may be very slow. Probably there's still not efficient and effective connection between institutions. So I think when you get behind the the surface of financial, it's it's a lot less modern than it may appear on the surface. Especially if you start getting into, you know, um, the the national banks, right? And the reserve banks. Yeah, I mean by by nature, the bigger you are, the longer you've been around, the bigger and more legacy systems you will have, and the larger it is to change. I mean, a, a classic example, um, it, it's not a private bank, it's the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, and, and the U.S. Treasury um, management of the U.S. Treasuries, which is the, the largest debt market in the whole world. I mean, for decades, they, they stuck with fractional pricing. 132nds, 164, 128th, and the rest of the world had all gone to decimal. And, and they thought, why is the world's biggest capital market not going to decimal? Because the costs of the system, because the system were so big and so interlinked with everything, was just too, too great. And so that, that to me is a good example of how if you're too big to change, mm. um, then, you know, the the latest developments can be very late coming. Um, and so, you know, vest, vested interests, um, legacy systems can often be a, a big barrier to change. Mm. And then, you know, we, we can't talk about, you know, opportunities without talking about uh, the risks. Um, certainly, there are opportunities everywhere but there's also risks and for founders and for investors um, we can see situations where innovation outpaces legislation so if you look at coinbase uh, unlike their uh, peers that have you know possibly been a little bit gray um, 
they've tried to actively engage with regulators, uh, but they're still very recently being dinged. Um, what, what do you think about this as a risk? Legislative risk always follows, um, legislation always follows the innovation and not the other way around. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a public policy question because by definition, governments are not centers of innovation with very rare exceptions. It, it tends to come from private sector competitive markets. And, and so firstly, you, you have as a government, a public policy choice. Do you want to encourage innovation, which means you get the good parts of it and you get the risks with it, you know, every distribution has a right tail and a left tail. We all want the right tail, but if you want a right tail, you've got to take some of the left tail with it. If if you're not prepared to follow um, or to be exposed to those risks, then you are limiting innovation. And and as we teach in, in investment management, if you want a higher expected return, you have to take a higher level of risk. The other thing is, um, in in many markets, there's not a good connect between government regulators and private sectors for a variety of different reasons. Um, sometimes they feel there'll be conflicts of interest if there's movements quickly back and forth between the two sectors. But if if you don't have some sort of really effective mechanism for integration and knowledge interchange, then that delay in proper regulation will be even greater to the, um, the innovation. So there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of questions there at, at the high level government level. I mean, during the uh, crypto bubble, a lot of, you know, retail investors got very excited and lost their shirts. Um, then you had, you know, some investors who were probably a little bit more cautious and said, you know, well, I want to be part of the crypto boom. Uh, I'll put my money into Coinbase because they seem to be, you know, they're, they're listed, they file all their reports, they're engaging with regulators. They're still probably going to lose their shirts. Yeah. Um, what, like, there is a lot of upside to investing in these fintechs. There is downside. How, aside from the risk to founders, how do investors protect themselves? I, I think, you know, to take one step back, one of the big failings we, we have almost everywhere, not, not just in any one ju- jurisdiction, is not providing good basic education for people to invest. I mean, whether you're investing in crypto or whether you're investing in a a listed stock on the New York Stock Exchange, the approach that you take is, is, is fundamentally the same. You know, you're just looking at something different, a different company or a different product. But, you know, you think of all the people you you went through high school with or, or maybe even university, you know, unless they took a specialized financial course, they, they probably don't know how to do due diligence and, and make an informed investment decision. And, and so they tend to just follow trends. So um, education in the market is, is a really big issue. In the Founder Institute program, um, I guess the standard program, you're adding additional modules, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about 
the 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 modules you're going to be adding to that program you know i i have a, a separate course and and on the of entrepreneurship and on the first day we have one section called every company is two companies and what that means is that you have a, an industry or a specialization you're in healthcare you're in fintech um you're in blockchain whatever that that's your industry that's your subject matter specialization but every company also has to have a business administration manage the commercialization managing the marketing generate revenue so there there's those two aspects to every company so the core program of the founders institute basically helps the companies manage the the business side the business growth how how to market how to make um pitches to prospective customers it it focuses really on the business administration side but it doesn't provide specialist knowledge and so um as i have a background i thought we would supplement it by four additional modules that dealt with financial markets financial products and financial markets operations to give some of that specialist subject matter knowledge to the founders many of whom probably come from a technology background mm. and have never worked in financial markets and so to to understand you know how they really need to put this together to speak knowledgeably to big financial institutions they may want to partner with they need to have that that specialist knowledge and and also you know the investors that come along that may look at these companies they need to have those as well so we're trying to supplement a core program which focuses on the the business development with subject matter um expertise in financial markets and financial markets operations mm. Um let's go back to the uh the startup side of things and most of these startups will fail uh within 3 years like 90% high huge failure rate um there's a lot of people who who have ideas that are actually viable ideas but they don't know how to commercialize them they're lacking the training and and that's really what the the benefit or the intention of the founders institute program is is to find those people with a good idea but who need help to convert it into a successful business so they become the 40% of the graduates not the 60% of the ones that fail out so just a lot of lack of of ability to convert a good idea into a commercialized area that's um a big part of the problem um a lot of people who come from a research background um maybe because they they're taking a phd in biomedicine at a university they become fascinated on their area of research mm. um and and they they know it better than maybe anyone else on the planet and they say okay i'm the expert i'm going to commercialize this but there's no market for it. Mm-hmm. I remember the the first case study I took in my MBA was it was called Building the World's Best Mousetrap. And it was all about these people who were determined to build the best mousetrap, put time and effort into it. And they had the product, they spent money, but nobody wanted it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a combination of so many people have really good ideas but they don't test out whether there's a market demand for it because 
you you have to if you want to stay in the private sector, which is what we're talking about in startup companies, make this company financially viable. There's got to be a demand. Even if there is a demand, it's not a guarantee that you'll make money because it's a competitive market out there. You need to know how to grow the business. You've got to have a, a good team. Um, founders typically come from the technical side, so they're maybe not good in, in marketing, sales, and branding. And of course, Generating revenue, generating sales is the first serious test that you face. And that's probably accounts for a good portion of that 90% who fail before three years because they can't commercialize, they can't generate revenue, they can't market. So there's a, there's a lot of variables. Yeah, my favorite quote from uh, uh, an exited founder, Justin Kahn, who uh, was the founder of Twitch, um, he says, first-time founders worry about product, second-time founders worry about distribution. Yeah, yeah. There's no truer words were spoken. So we've been a wild ride, John. We've had Madoff, we've had uh, SBF, uh, investment risks, opportunities. Um, let's, let's bring it all back together. Um, for founders and um, investors, you're running the FinTech ASEAN program. Tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. Um, firstly, just the details. Registration will be open until the 20th of August for any founder that is interested in joining the program. And it's not just for, for companies that are located in Asia. Um, any company that would be interested in perhaps entering the Asian market is welcome to join. There's, there's no geographic restrictions on who might, um, who can join. And um, the program kicks off on the 4th of September, runs for 14 consecutive Tuesdays, the four supplementary sessions about financial markets and financial markets operations will be on four Thursdays over that 14-week period, and it will all wrap up before the, the end of December. And we... It, it's part of our ecosystem. I mean, we, we provide consulting and advice to five mid-tech, um, fintech, medium-sized enterprises that are all entering the ASEAN market for the first time. They're interested in, in finding good startups to work with because it, it may supplement their product line. So they've developed very successful strategies of working with startups in America and Europe, and we hope to replicate that. And so that might be an added benefit to um, a founder that takes the program. Maybe there is someone there that will be their, their first partner or their, their first customer, and that's the connect there. We also are working with a number of angel investors and one large venture capital fund from Palo Alto, who's looking at Asia for the first time. So we, we want to assist the investors by not only helping companies to be more successful, but getting to know them and to allow for a more effective due diligence process. Um, everyone benefits when, when you know the companies and you know the investors well. So we, we think that the startup, um, which will go through the accelerator is a great way for us to get to know these companies, to help them build their relationships with the fintech enterprises or the fintech investors. And, and sort of everyone wins in that triangle. That's great. So I will put the link to sign up uh, in the description below. If you're listening on audio only, uh, we shall uh, put the link up uh, on our website and I'll put that in the uh, show notes. But uh, John, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It, it's it's a new venture. Um, 
It's a very important thing because I've always been involved with training. So this will be my first time focusing on ASEAN, which I think is an area with just a huge amount of opportunity. So I'm, I'm really excited in moving it forward. See you next time.